Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 437. This is Tim Maluli. I'm your host for this episode. Joining me is Tom. Tom, how are you doing? I'm good. Happy to be here. Yeah, so we are recording this on March 31st, 2023. Uh, it's the final day of the first quarter of 2023. So how was, how was your first quarter? My first quarter was better than I think a lot of other people's first quarter. And the reason I say that is because a lot of folks ripped open their year-end statements for 2022 and got an immediate hangover because they saw what happened in 2022. But I want to just quickly kind of walk through a back of the envelope kind of thing in what happened in 2022. The, the market really fell apart in the first six months of the year. If you look at what's happened since, say, July 1st of 2022, right. the market for the second half of the year really didn't do anything. Yeah, it didn't really recover much, but it also didn't continue to go down, which is a good thing. Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty flat second half of last year. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. It had the headline, a wild quarter for markets might foretell further turbulence. The, that last part about further turbulence, you know, that's conjecture. We'll see uh, what happens. But when you're, did... when you're flying the plane... Yeah. You should wear your seatbelt. Right, yeah. There might be turbulence. Exactly. But it did feel like a wild quarter if you were not necessarily looking at the performance of the market and just focusing on what was going on in the headlines and, and the sentiment and how people were feeling. I think people were optimistic coming into 2023, happy that 2022 was over and looking forward to a new year. You know, some of the economic data, the inflation numbers and different areas of that were starting to subside. So people were hoping that, you know, that would accelerate and we'd be back to normal by opening day of baseball season, which was yesterday. Uh, I love the segue. Nice tie, <laughs> nice tie in there. Yeah, but a, a lot happened and, you know, inflation didn't come down as quickly as people thought. The Fed kind of changed, not changed their tune, but... People changed their expect expectations of what the Fed was going to do and what they're going to do throughout the rest of this year. Uh, we saw a couple banks get into some trouble, which we've talked about on videos and podcasts. There were a lot of things kind of swirling around in the headlines, but when you when folks rip open their quarter one statements, probably I'm guessing be a little bit surprised as to how good the market was in the first quarter of this year. I hope so. Casey and I recorded a podcast last week where we talked about how a lot of times uh, folks don't realize the news was bad last year, and so they tend to get defensive at just the wrong time. Like the the old analogy is the barn's already burned down. Why are you trying to lock the door? Right. The horses exactly. are gone. I don't think that the first quarter was as bad as some people were dreaming it might be. And I also think that there were plenty of people who came in upbeat looking forward to 2023 simply because 2022 was over and it was in the past. And so as you turn the calendar to a new year in 2023, there was 
plenty of pent-up demand. I believe that I think when folks kind of recapped 2022, they realized that the news wasn't as bad as we all dreamed it might be. And that led to a nice little spark of buying in January of 22. January of 22, uh, 23, the markets were terrific. Yeah, They were great. We had a good year in January of 2023. The whole, the whole month could have been a good year. Yeah. Yeah, so coming into today, um, the Dow Jones is, is essentially flat uh, for the first quarter, which relatively speaking to the first quarter of 2022 seems great. But you look at the S&P 500, it's up you know, five and a half, almost 6%. Who see, we'll see where the markets close today. We're up again. Uh, but the NASDAQ was up over 15, now 16 plus percent in the first quarter. That's the biggest outperformance from the NASDAQ over the Dow since 2001. Right. Uh, so the NASDAQ, which got crushed last year more than the Dow did, uh, the reverse seemed to happen this year. So you wonder if it's just, it's essentially the opposite of what happened last year. So could it just be, you know, mean mean reversion? Uh, things got beaten down so badly that they kind of had to move their way back towards neutral. And Tim just described exactly what mean reversion is. When things tend to overshoot in one year, they tend to overshoot the next year. And for that matter, the year before. Yeah. I mean, you've heard me discuss with folks on the phone that if you look at what happened in 2021, we got a little more than we probably were entitled to right. in 2021. We gave back just about all of that in mm -hmm. 2022. And so we started 2023 pretty much where we started 2021. Yeah. Nobody likes that yeah. because we're essentially going backwards, but it's not fatal. Right. It's not something that's going to actually cripple someone's portfolio or destroy someone's future. And trying to pair the market gains from this quarter with the economic data and people's anticipation of what was going to happen and what's supposed to be coming in the future. Even with last year too, it, it, it says to me that the market is going to continue to move up or down regardless of if people are right or wrong about what we think is going to happen. Uh, this, this, mar or this article in the Wall Street Journal had a little snippet that said, uh, you know, this widely anticipated recession has failed to materialize and you know the labor market is still strong uh, inflation is still high it hasn't come down as fast as other people have expected it to the expectation was potentially the fed might start cutting rates at some point this year now who knows if that's going to happen uh, so to me it just says you can be incredibly wrong about what you think is going to happen with all of those different factors and the market can just continue to go up anyway. Right. Um, what's the rhyme or reason? I don't know. Can we pinpoint one specific thing? I feel like people want to put performance up or down on one data set or one, one point of information and can't really pinpoint what exactly is driving all of this. Do we need a reason why markets go up or markets go down? We don't. Me and you don't. Some <laughs> some people out there just crave uh, that reason why. 
Um, I think for for longer term investors, it just speaks to tuning out the noise because that's all all of this is. There's there were people in this articles, you know, continuing to uh, have opinions about where they think things are going to go, and we're not out of the woods yet, and we think that you know the these gains are just getting ahead of themselves because the they think the Fed is going to cut rates at the end of the year, and it's like everyone's been wrong about all of that this entire way. So that doesn't really explain what's going on here. When we have earnings continuing to go up, revenues continuing to go up, employment continuing to go up, unemployment staying low, does the Fed really need to cut rates? I don't think so. I mean, doesn't doesn't seem like that would would be the case. Everything uh, that we just outlined yeah. shows an expanding economy. So all of these folks who have been talking about the recession is coming, the recession, the end is near, the recession is coming. Yeah. Uh, not yet. Right. Maybe someday. Yeah. But not yet. Yeah. Th- there's a quote in here. It says, there seems to be a disconnect between market expectations for the Fed and what the Fed is saying. It's like, yeah, everyone wants the Fed to, all right, let's, these rates are high enough. Let's get them back down to zero or get them back down to one, two percent. Like this, this is too much. It's, we want it back down there tomorrow. And it's the, the speed at which I think people are anticipating all of this happening is, is one of the bigger disconnects is that all of this in terms of economic numbers and inflation and recessions and everything is just taking longer and longer than we want it to because everyone wants everything now. Right. I want it to happen now. <laughs> I wanted it to happen yesterday. Right. Do you think that rates are going back to where they were a year and a half ago? I can't predict that. Uh, I don't, if I had to guess, I don't think so in the immediate future. Do, but you, do you see a need for interest rates to be where they were a year and a half ago? It doesn't seem like it, but I mean, it, it also, who's to say that things would, that it wouldn't work out if, if rates did go, go back to there. I mean, rates have been going up for a year and a half now, and we've had markets that go down with rates going up, and now we've had markets go up with rates going up. Does, that, does it make a difference? Is it, I guess that's my point, is all of these decisions by the Fed and the economic data and the inflation numbers, it's like we, the market's gone down and now the market's gone up. Maybe all of that doesn't factor in as much as people think it's going to. I love that quote that's in the article that says markets have proven to be more buoyant than most people thought. No kidding. It doesn't necessarily mean that the market is wrong. It means that all of our expectations of what was going to happen was wrong. Right. So all of our predictions about the future were mostly wrong. And that's why we don't predict the future. And that's why for... Like I said before, for the longer term investor, you don't have to make buying, selling decisions. You don't have to make bets on whether or not your opinion of what's going to happen is right or wrong because you should have a allocation to the market that can withstand being right or being wrong or rates going up or rates going down or a recession or growth in the economy. So I think just where we're at right now, where we're talking about allocations, will help lead into our second topic that we want to talk about. But when we throw around the word allocation, in simple terms, can you break down what that means for our listeners? 
Sure. For for your investment portfolio, your in, your allocation is what percentage of the funds that you have available to you in your investment accounts, what percentage are invested in stocks or equities, what are invested in fixed income and bonds, short-term uh, fixed, in, fixed interest investments. That also includes cash. What are you keeping out of the market at the bank? Uh, all of that equals your, your allocation. So basically how your investment pie is carved up. Yeah, so a way to visualize that is just a pretty basic pie chart. You know, if you have 70% of your money in stocks, then, you know, almost three quarters of that pie is going to be... Pepperoni. Colored in. Yeah, exactly. Stocks are the pepperoni because they add a little spice to it, right? Well said. <laughs> there we go. But there is another article in, in the Wall Street Journal titled, Why It's Now Easier to Underestimate Your Expenses and Overspend. Tim, it's always easier to spend more than you think. Yeah, now it's just easier. Right, exactly. I think um, the last article that we were talking about, I was making the point that these inflation numbers and the economic data doesn't really matter much to the results in the stock market. But the inflation numbers probably do matter uh, in this next part that has to deal more with your cash flow and your budget and how much you're accounting for what you're spending every month. I know that uh, in this podcast episode, we're linking to two articles that are on the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal has a paywall. I would encourage folks, if you are interested in getting a subscription to a publication, I would pony up the dough for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And I would look specifically for this author Veronica Dagger. She writes a lot about personal finance topics and I look forward to her to her articles all the time. Very well written, usually well covered and usually on relevant topics like this. Yeah, I think a lot of the the main financial media outlets like the Wall Street Journal or even CNBC. I know we constantly tell people to turn off CNBC on their TVs, but on their website, uh, their personal finance section is actually really, really useful. And same thing with the Wall Street Journal as well. So, Tim, when we talk about, you know, an article like this that, that zooms in on spending, talk a little bit about why we focus on building a balance sheet and a cash flow report right at the very beginning. Yeah, it's one of, it, it is the first thing that we do for people. Um, it gives us a baseline reading of where they currently stand with cash flow. You know, we want to know how much income is coming in each month and where everything is going uh, with their expenses each month. It doesn't particularly matter, you know, if, if they're spending too much money at a restaurant or, or it, it, we just need the numbers. You know, we're not here to judge you where you spend your money unless someone specifically asks us to crack down on their budget, in which case we can give our opinions. But most of the time, it, it's not terribly important. We just need the most accurate numbers because those carry forward into all of the projections that we're doing, whether it's a retirement projection or some sort of savings goal that they're trying to meet in the future. So if we're working with inaccurate information on the cash flow side, it's going to make all of our projections into the future obsolete. They're not really going to mean much. Garbage in, garbage out. 
and I can think of a specific episode that we had at the table with a couple that came in and they just did not want to go through this exercise. I think that was all by itself a lesson for these folks because they had to come clean, not to us, but to themselves on how much they were spending each month. They both appeared to be a little embarrassed about their about the way they were spending money. Yeah. Like Tim said a moment ago, we're not here to judge. We we're here to make the numbers work as best as they can. And so we want to be able to show you in retirement when there's no longer a paycheck coming in where we're going to pull dollars from to make ends meet yeah. to make your lifestyle work the yeah. way you want it to work yeah there are people out there definitely who who would rather not know <laughs> kind of just fly blind in terms of their spending and obviously we can't condone that but there are, there are even people out there now and this article is kind of getting at it where you might have done a plan or you might have done your budget a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and it's still you're still spending money at the same places, so you you don't necessarily make adjustments along the way. But now with inflation higher and lasting longer than people have anticipated, you know, some of those line items on your budget might actually end up being a little bit more expensive than you were anticipating, and not just on you know, things that people talk about all the time with prices going up like gas. The inflation's starting to kind of bleed into different areas and your budget, whether you know it or not, might actually be higher than you expected. So it, it's a good idea to just go back and rerun the numbers and actually dig through your bank statements and see just how much you're spending and what kind of an increase you've seen. Here are a couple of examples of what Tim's referring to. If you carry a balance on credit card. A year ago, that balance may have been compounding interest at say 11.912%, something like that. Now the average credit card interest rate is around 20%. So the percent of income that you're spending just to pay the interest on your debt has almost doubled in the past year. That's inflation on top of inflation. Correct. So you're getting double whammy there, double whacked for, uh, for inflation. Another example of this is something that we're all, we all do, and it's, I'll throw it in the bucket and call it mental accounting, mm -hmm. where when you think about the money that you spend each month, it's like, you know, I don't spend that much on groceries. I fill my, my car up with gas once a week. Uh, you know, I know my mortgage is fixed and I'm only paying a 3% mortgage. And so I spend this, that, and the other thing. And so I kind of know what my expenses are. But what people don't factor in is a trip to the emergency room. Right. Or a one-time car repair. Yeah. Or, you know... You got birthday gifts for nieces and nephews. Yeah. Those are the things you're only spending money on maybe once a year. You're not even thinking about how that gets factored into the equation. I know this year our out-of-pocket deductible for insurance went from $2,000 to $2,500 a year. 
So that alone is more than a 20% increase. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I know uh, I had to get something done and I wound up paying out of pocket a lot of money. Yeah, it's, it's hard to account for the one-time events when you're making a monthly budget. In your head. In your, in your head or even on paper, honestly. So that's why, I mean, a lot of times when we're making a cash flow or a balance sheet, we talk with people and it's like, we bring stuff like that up and it's like, yeah, it might make sense to add just like a miscellaneous category or make a, a category on your budget that is literally just, it says one-time expenses, but you're accounting for that on a monthly basis so that it helps you mentally account for it so that when you're trying to figure out how much money you can save or where you should be saving your money each month, uh, those things don't just fall by the wayside because yeah, it might turn out to be that one specific event happens one time a year, but honestly, it feels like almost every month there's a one-time event. So in some capacity, you, you should I, be you accounting I, for it. You and I had a meeting just the other day where that came up, where right. we talked about something happens every single every month. month. Yeah. The question I know that you love to ask all the time when we're putting together cash flow reports is, where are you going on a trip this year? Right. Because most times people don't even write that down. Yeah, they, and <laughs> it's a big expense. The exercise is usually geared towards monthly numbers. So you're, like you were saying before, gas, rent, mortgage, property taxes, cable bills, things that you pay on a monthly basis. So it's tough to remember, oh yeah, that's right, we spent $3,000 going to X place wherever we went. Right. Because it's a one-time thing but you do need to save money for it. Like this article is pointing out, and like we were saying before, it, it's it's costing more and more money. Uh, and if you're putting that on a credit card and not paying it off, it's costing you more money. And then the interest is costing you more. Things are just getting more and more expensive for people. I think it speaks to the what we tell people all the time that financial planning is a process. It's not an event. The valuable part of that is the planning, not the plan, because you have to be consistently rerunning these numbers based on whatever's going on. Because right now, the inflation numbers are high, so your budget is going to be higher than normal. But when inflation eventually at some point subsides, you can run it again and spend less on things. So it, it ebbs and flows, I think. I think it's also important for folks, for listeners to uh, bear in mind that a financial planner isn't in the business of shaming people into spending less money. We want to provide some black and white proof regarding where your money goes. I would say for a large majority of the American public, they don't really know where their money goes on a monthly or yearly basis. They just can't track it. Yeah. And they forget about, oh, yeah, I had to go to the emergency room. I had to pay my entire out-of-pocket expense $2,500. Oh, we had that car wreck. And I had to pay, you know, extra money, plus I had to do some other things because of that. Or, oh, yeah, we went to Hilton Head for a week and it was $5,000. Yeah. Becoming aware of those expenses is is half the battle. You know, there, there are ways to try and mentally put up some roadblocks to spending. I think the article pointed out that 
uh, a survey said that 39% of Americans identify as emotional spenders. That's, uh, a, that's a very important statistic. It, and it's an incredibly real thing. You know, when you're emotionally high or low, um, people spend money to fuel those feelings or fix those feelings. And, you know, so, that's where you can run into trouble. And that's where budgets and cash flow ba- balance sheets can go awry. Some people will spend money emotionally on a new wardrobe or a trip, or sometimes it's just buying cosmic brownies. Right, yeah. <laughs> Why'd you look at me when you said cosmic brownies? Just kidding. Yeah, but I, there was uh, someone quoted in this article, it was a, a financial planner who was practicing more mindful spending or just kind of asking yourself, like, do I really need this? Uh, and the planner said, I usually try and tell myself to wait a week and then if you still want it in a week, then go ahead and buy it. And she said, most of the time you either forget about it by the next week or you, you realize that like, eh, I could probably do without this. So That's such a great practice. Yeah, it, it, uh, it seems easier said than done. There are ways to, to kind of put up mental roadblocks to stop yourself. But I think just the more important thing is being mindful or being aware of where the money's going and not really sticking your head in the sand and saying, I'd rather not know because they're, you're going to fail if that's your, if that's your technique. It, it will catch up with you someday. So that's going to wrap up episode 437. Thanks again, as always, for tuning in, and we will catch up with you next week. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.